Welcome to The Code, your guide to health and human performance. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Fix from Physio Room, a performance-based rehab facility here in Denver. On this podcast, we're going to explore the key areas of your life that impact your overall health and wellness, from sleep hygiene and stress management to nutrition, movement, relationships, and more. We bring you conversations with industry experts and top performers to share strategies they have for cracking the code on health and human performance. Now let's get to today's show. What's going on, guys? Dr. Andrew Fix back for an episode of The Code. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate all of your time listening to this, however you might be consuming this podcast. This is going to be really fun. I've got three of my coworkers here from Physio Room joining me. We're going to spend some time talking all about ACL tears, ACL reconstruction. We've got some experts on that here on the show. So um, without any further ado, Dr. Allie Nelson, would you do us a favor and just introduce yourself for all the listeners to hear? Uh, you're newer to our team here at Physio Room, but like, who are you? Where are you from? And tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, so I'm originally from North Dakota. All my schooling is from there undergrad as well as PT school. And after I graduated, I knew I wanted to continue learning more. So I did an orthopedic residency program here in Denver to become an orthopedic clinical specialist. And basically I've been here ever since. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we are so stoked to have you part of our team. I'm pumped to have you on this podcast. So thanks for carving out some time to do this. And um, I'm excited to ask you some questions. Um, So just like Allie said she is an orthopedic clinical specialist. Dr. Tim Tracy is as well. Tim, can you do us a favor, introduce yourself a little bit? You've been with our team a bit longer, and I know we call you the bike guy a lot of times, but um, tell us about you, Tim. Yeah, so before I really started focusing on cycling, uh, first eight years after uh, graduating PT school, I worked at the University of Missouri. It was a big orthopedic complex, and so I saw a lot of post-operative patients. A lot of them were ACLs, knee injuries, um, worked with, you know, the D1 athletes from the zoo. Uh, after doing that for a number of years, then uh, I worked with my alma mater at Columbia College uh, soccer team and worked on a off-season injury mitigation program with them. And then also worked with any other athletes as well that were having knee issues or post-operative status. So uh, something that uh, I've seen a lot playing college soccer and then really uh, one of my like most uh, passionate things to like know about is having that experience. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, you've, you've seen it a lot, unfortunately in the clinic, it is uh, very common. And speaking of which James, as you briefly introduce yourself again, some of you guys listening to this may recognize the name James Stetson. He's been on this show a few times before, but uh, James has also had his own experience with an ACL tear and reconstruction. So let's hear it, James. Yeah. So, uh, James Stetson, you guys know me as the crappy chiropractor. Um, <laughs> I mostly have most of my experience in ACLs on a personal side, um, tearing my ACL in 2020 and then ultimately turning that into a trip to the CrossFit games about a year and a half later. So, um, been there, done that, as they say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and if if this is cool with you guys, this is where I would love to start. Tim, you obviously mentioned that ACL tears are really common in in soccer, but James, you've had your own experience. So, could you sort of like paint that story, or you know, uh, rehash that story of how did you tear your ACL, 
And then what was, what was your experience like, you know, having that injury, having the surgery and going through that rehabilitation process for yourself a uh, little over, well, two years ago? Yeah. So it's funny that Tim's seen most of his ACLs in soccer because I tore mine playing soccer. Um, indoor soccer just uh, basically was airborne, took a wrong step as I landed because I got pushed off balance and tore the ACL right then and there. Um, I had surgery about two months after the fact, give or take a handful of days. Um, and that was right before COVID ultimately hit, which gave me the ability to really focus on, you know, pre-op a little bit, but mainly post-op. Um, I have a pretty awesome home gym facility in Kansas city where I was at the time and kind of got the ability to work out as much as I possibly wanted to. Um, after that reconstruction, um, I took about six days off completely where I didn't do any kind of movement. And then I, as a, you know, somebody does CrossFit got into doing CrossFit style workouts. In addition to my rehab, I really leaned on the crossover effect in training. So a lot of lower body stuff, but mainly with my left leg in order to continue to hopefully hold on to some strength on the right side. Mm -hmm. Um, but my ACL experience was a little bit different than hopefully most will be because I also tore the lateral horn of my meniscus on the posterior side, which meant that I was non-weight bearing for six weeks, which made my recovery a little bit more challenging than most. Um, and so I had to like relearn to walk a little bit at the end of those six weeks. So, um, mine was a little bit more fun per se than the average experience. Um, but for the most part, hitting the same milestones in the end, doing roughly the same things. And um, I actually at one point tracked everything that I did and built a, you know, I call it the crutch program. Um, so a program of like everything that I did training wise post op. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and like you kind of mentioned it, that sort of crossover effect. I was just having that same uh, conversation with somebody here in our clinic earlier this week about how, and I know you three do this, but whenever we have someone in the office, if we have them doing exercises, say for their, for their left leg, we're also going to have them do them typically on the opposite side, because there is a huge neurological and physiological benefit from whether we're talking about muscle gain and growth, reduction of atrophy, whatever that might be to training the opposite side of the body. So, and then, you know, being out here in Colorado, we mentioned soccer, you know, we're starting to slowly creep towards ski season and everything. And ACL tears are just really, really prevalent, um, you know, particularly in different parts of the country, depending on what's going on. So, um, Allie, what about you from James said he started uh, rehab or excuse me, he had the surgery two months after his tear happened. What have you seen in the clinic typically is like the timeline when someone tears their ACL, like how long is it before they then have surgery and then post surgery? How quickly do they usually get to you in the office? It really depends. Uh, my sister, actually, she just recently tore her ACL. So mm -hmm. I've been going through this whole process with her. But as soon as they tear their ACL, it's basically the matter of when they can get in for surgery. You want to get them in as quick as they can, especially if they're athletes. 
And then from following up from that, it depends on how far out they are. I definitely encourage prehab Mm -hmm. prior to, if it is going to be more of a delayed surgery because the carryover effect, especially with quad activation, getting their quads firing right after surgery can be super challenging. So if they can get in before that, I definitely recommend it. And then I will see them usually right away, right after post-op, they'll get in with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Usually within days, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Allie, I know all of us on here know what you mean when you say prehab, but so say someone's in James's situation, they have the injury happen and, but they're not going to be able to get in for surgery for a month or two months. And you're suggesting that they start participating in prehab. What, what exactly does that mean? So basically it's looking at different things that we would look at after they have surgery. So you're kind of coming in and getting a foundation of what the strengthening is going to look like. And because they have the swelling right after surgery that inhibits and stops the muscles from working appropriately. So if they can get in prior to having surgery, we can basically help them and guide them through exercises. So they have kind of that knowledge base prior to, and know what they should be feeling because of what's going to happen with pain and swelling after surgery. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And that can be extremely beneficial, speed up that recovery process oftentimes post-operatively. And, you know, I think it's interesting that, uh, I, I recorded an episode as of the recording of this August 25th of 2022, uh, this episode I'm about to reference hasn't aired yet, but we did an episode on you know, the rice principle. And I just thought it was great that you didn't mention people were coming in and you were just slapping ice packs on their knee to reduce that swelling. You talked much more about movement and exercise and getting them, getting them moving, seeing how you can minimize those things and get them prepped. Um, okay. So someone goes in and, and has that operation done, uh, James, what type of like graft or whatnot did you have in your surgery? Yeah. So I, I did a lot of my own research, um, going into my surgery. This is before I graduated school. So I wasn't, you know, know it all yet. Um, not that I am now, but, um, my surgeon recommended the, uh, patellar tendon graft, um, as kind of his personal preference on, um, you know, what I wanted to do post-op continuing to, you know, do CrossFit at a relatively high level. I don't think he understood what exactly I was talking about when I said that. Um, that's pretty typical. Um, Mm -hmm. but then there's other options being cadaver, um, either a cadaver ACL or cadaver Achilles tendon is actually what I've heard was a new one. Um, and then your own hamstring. Um, I ruled out hamstring pretty darn quick and cadaver ACL pretty darn quick as well. Um, I've heard and read really good things about cadaver Achilles tendons just because they are under crazy load all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like the idea of just using my own tissue, um, even sure. though that quad tendon can be more painful of a recovery, um, which it definitely wasn't easy. Uh, I've had really good results with mine um, and I've been real happy with it so far. Yeah. 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 Thanks for that. Tim, since you've had, uh, it sounds like quite a bit of experience working with people, especially there from Mizzou and whatnot who have torn their ACL. And I know this is very surgeon dependent and maybe region dependent, but what have you seen is pretty common in terms of, you know, trends of what types of grafts or repair types people have for this procedure. And then, um, and then what I would love to do after that is sort of go down the, go down the path after we talk about grafts of like, 
that decision-making process with Allie of whether, whether someone should or should not have a surgery, depending on their situation. Like, do, do we handle this operatively or not? But first, Tim, what have you seen with the graphs? Uh, yeah, kind of like what James mentioned. So the, the high level uh, patients, people want to get back to their prior level of function. Then the patellar graft is definitely shown to be uh, a favor in that regard. Uh, <clears throat> then as far as that, the, the quad tendon repair has also been a, a trend lately uh, that I saw just as much. And that was also just kind of a physician preference based on their training as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so definitely like those higher populations, that's what is most, most common. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. That makes sense. And I'm, I'm right there with you, James. If you are somebody who is, you know, really trying to get back to a higher level activity, this is a younger person who really hopes to be pretty active. A lot of times there is an opt opt in for using your own tissue in that type of a situation. Whereas maybe a little bit different if this is someone who's a little bit older, they're looking for an enhancement and stability, but their activity level is not going to be quite what quite what yours is based on that frame we see sitting there behind you. But um, Allie, what types of conversations have you had with, uh, you know, with clients or training in your residency program about like when, and you sort of already mentioned this, um, you know, if they're going into surgery, the quicker, the better, if they're going to have that done. But like, what are some situations where this person probably is definitely a candidate where they should go have this reconstruction done versus some conversations where maybe maybe we end up recommending to them or you do, you know, maybe you don't need an ACL reconstruction surgery in this unique situation. Had patients that are generally older and they have either torn their ACL a lot, a while ago and they didn't realize it. Now it's years later and they have knee pain and they're like, Oh, Hey, I did this, but I don't really know when nothing significantly happened. Then with that, I would treat them a lot differently than I would my younger active patient population. So if I have a young athlete that comes into me there, I'm going to like recommend surgery basically for them because similar to James, they're going to want to get back to whatever it is they're doing in the sport. So they need that stability and that foundation. However, if they are older, then it's kind of more or less what they're going to return to doing as well as the chronicity. Did it just immediately happen or was it something that happened years ago and now they're just starting to have knee pain? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know sometimes we get into conversations where, you know, whether, you know, we would classify someone as a, a coper or a non-coper, you know, before or after their surgery happens, like our, our perception based on, based on what we're receiving from that person of like how likely they are to be successful, how likely they, their recovery process is to go. Can you touch on that just a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So definitely the classification between the two, what you're kind of looking at is to be a coper. They have to have no more than one episode of giving away since the injury. They also have to be able to do a single leg hop test. There's multiple variations of it, but basically the injured leg has to be at least 80% of what the uninjured leg is. And then there's also an outcome score. It's called the knee outcome survey of activities of daily living, basically. And that has to be a score of at least 80%. And then the last one, they have to have a global rating score of at least 60%. And all of this was basically looked at over a year. So it's not just a short time period. And then there's actually also the recommendation of at least 10 PT sessions Mm -hmm. that they should have prior to going through this as well. Got it. Got it. Got it. So they have a little bit of a baseline from being in those, um, 
for us really to get a good assessment of, of what's going on. Um, you know, my mother is one of those candidates like, or I guess not candidates, like you were sort of talking about someone who didn't even know that they had an ACL tear. They just had some knee pain, some knee instability for another reason, some swelling wound up several years ago, going to get an MRI. And she wasn't exactly told by the physician that, Hey, you, you have an ACL tear, but she was basically told, we don't see your ACL on this image, right? Like we don't see that there's an ACL still intact in your knee. So of course she's, you know, she's talking to me and the the longer I've been in my career, the more my family members listen to me about what they should and should not do. But, um, you know, she was not someone that I recommended going to get her ACL repaired because of the activity level that she has and the things that she loves to do. You know, she's not doing much pivoting, twisting, cutting type of activities. Um, and quite frankly, she's probably more of a candidate coming up here somewhat soon for a knee replacement rather than, rather than one of these soft tissue type of type of repairs. Um, so just interesting that you sort of mentioned that, well, whichever one of you three, uh, wants to tackle this, I would love one of you guys to sort of talk through, you know, when someone has their ACL repaired, ACL reconstruction surgery overall, what does that rehabilitation process look like? Like what are the phases of rehab? How long does it take somebody to get back to doing considerable activity? Since it's very common in soccer, why don't we go down the soccer route? How long does it take someone from time of surgery to realistically like getting back on the field, playing an actual soccer match? Yeah. So the first thing is just setting realistic expectations and just having them appreciate like even if they had the same surgery, the same surgeon as their teammate, mm -hmm. they could have a totally different outcome and like not to like really base anything on anyone except themselves. And that's like the biggest thing, like how individualized the, the response is and that uh, educating that like, you know, a year would be, you know, is still about average, but with recent studies, like showing that the neuromuscular um, regeneration component can take up to two years. And so, you know, like Adrian Peterson really kind of made trainers and PTs like pull their hair out, just coming back at like seven months or. Yeah, I think so. And still not having any um, issues. And so, you know, when that happened, then that was like, well, Adrian's back. Why am I not back? Well, because everyone is just so different. No, no different than any other pain response. Uh, and then like, having them see like, and then like, just setting examples like Derek Rose, how you know he had a meniscus um, tear, and they, you know all the Chicago people were giving him flack because you know he should have been back at six weeks, ten weeks, whatever, and he's just like mm -hmm. doesn't feel right. So just educating them uh, on like if they're apprehensive, if some if they're not doing something with confidence, then that is a sign. That is a, a way to objectify. That is one of the things that I use mm -hmm. when anything okay, but there's a reason for that. Your body's letting me know that you're just not ready for this. Whether that starts at initially putting weight on it and how do we get them away from support like crutches um, to, you know, full return to sport. If they're not, you know, have that confidence, then that's the biggest thing that I set the stage for. Yeah. From there, from there, it's just like having them appreciate, like understand the rationale for for like the timelines when they, when they start walking, when they start, um, doing the squats, when they start jogging, when they start running, there's all rationales for those of the, the healing timeframes. Uh, and the challenging thing is, 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 especially with young clients is 
you know, young athletes want, that are eager back to sport, if they're not doing pain, that is a, is a tough one to battle. So if they understand like why they're not doing something, again, like just having them understand like this, this is the rationale because those are really challenging because they want to get back to things. Yeah. What's going on code listeners, Dr. Andrew Fix here. And I want to tell you about our friends at Element. Element makes a tasty electrolyte drink with everything that you need and nothing that you don't. That means the science-backed electrolyte ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium, and none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. And that's why I use it. I've been taking Element for two years now, and I absolutely love the stuff, and I wouldn't want to exercise without it. For all of you code listeners and friends of Physio Room, Element's offered a special to you guys, and I want you to take advantage of it. Go ahead and visit drinkelement.com slash physioroom. That's drinklmnt.com slash physioroom to receive that special offer. You're going to get a free variety pack with any purchase that you place. And uh, I can't wait to hear what you guys think about it. Thanks so much. Yeah, those were awesome examples. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned those, the Adrian Peterson and the Derek Rose, you know, because not everybody's situation is the same, as you mentioned. And if you guys are unfamiliar with who Adrian Peterson is, of course, very uh, well-known NFL running back, most notably spent time with the Minnesota Vikings. And then he bounced around to a couple teams, spent a bit of time with the Washington Redskins too. But, um, you know, one of the more successful stories of someone who had a significant injury, ACL reconstruction, plays a very demanding position at running back and, you know, came came back really, really well, really, really fast. And um, that is not the typical trend that we see. I know the guideline generally um, that I like to give people is I remember reading a statistic that was if you come back to sport at six months post-op compared to nine months post-op for every month sooner that you come back to sport prior to nine months, you are, I think it was 50% more likely to re-tear your ACL. Um, it was either retear the same one, or maybe it was tear the other one. But so if you come back at six months, you're like 150% more likely than average to retear that ACL. So I always give, you know, when I'm trying to set expectations on the front end, I'm always really trying to just let people know this is going to be at least nine months because I don't want you to retear this. Um, could you come back sooner? Yeah, maybe, but we'll, we'll see how the process goes. Um, so James, what was, what was your experience with your repair. And of course you're not getting back to, you know, football or basketball like those two, but you're still getting back to quite a high level of activity. So when did you like start running? When did you start, you know, squatting with weight that you were somewhat happy with, um, and getting back to some of that higher level activity? Oh boy. As I, as I answer that, I'm going to cheat. And cause I like made a timeline of this on my Instagram as I went that. through the rehab process and all that fun stuff. Um, but I, I took mine relatively slow, um, with the intention of having longevity through my new knee basically. Um, and so like I, like I had, I had six weeks where I was completely non-weight bearing on the right side. And at that, that point, meniscus repair. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, um, at six weeks, literally day of six weeks, I started walking again, but that was really the only loading that I did for a little while. Um, and then I took things relatively slow at week 17, I began running again. Um, and then close to 
eight months, maybe nine months is when I started doing cutting again. Um, but being someone that wasn't going to get paid for what I was doing activity wise, like Mm -hmm. Adrian Peterson, he had financial incentive to get back faster. I, I took mine slow. I also had the mindset of basically being retired from competitive CrossFit after I tore the ACL. So what happened later down the road was, you know, realistically shocking. Um, but as soon as I could do something with confidence, like what Tim talked about, I did do it. Um, and that I kind of got off the rails a little bit when it came to like specific timelines that are generally Mm -hmm. seen in a physical therapy clinic. Um, I was trying to push the envelope as much as I could while still having the confidence and still, um, understanding where my body was at in the recovery process and not pushing it too far. Um, and that's just a little bit about who I am. So I, I do think that the, the patient and their mindset going into recovery is huge in playing into how fast they come back and how successfully they come back. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And of course, everybody's procedure is different, whether there's, you know, meniscus tear, MCL involvement, just the ACL, whatever that might be. Um, now you started to to mention some of these things, like when you had confidence, you wanted to start to push things to the amount that you could and that you felt confident with, but you didn't want to overstep and, um, you know, push too much too soon. So Allie, what are, with some of the clients that you've seen and some of the um, surgical post-operative protocols and things that you've worked through, uh, what are some of the very common like do's and don'ts that, that we see on those things, like things that people should avoid early on things that they are okay to do? Like what can someone expect after they have one of these operations? Like, you know, what their process is going to look like in PT in terms of you can do these things, you can't do these things. That's a great question. So it really depends on the patient, honestly, specifically. And I really will load them and work with them depending on what they can tolerate. So to me, every patient differently, I, even though the protocols will have a foundation of timelines, it really honestly depends on the patient. If sure. they're still having trouble with a simple, just air squat and they have pain, especially getting closer to that 90 degrees is definitely mm-hmm. challenging in the beginning phases. So I'm not going to load them right away, but then mm-hmm. on the reverse side of it too, is I feel that there is an underloading in regards to PT. So depending on where they're at and depending on pain, obviously are very big variables, but then it's also important that we're training them specifically for that sport. Mm-hmm. And I find that there, most patients will spend a majority of time without actually lifting a barbell or dumbbells or anything that's a challenging weight for them in regards to actually challenging them in terms of strength and hypertrophy and not just like, Oh yeah, I did, you know, three sets of 10. Am I done? You know, what's next and what do you have for me? They should be challenged and they should be progressed appropriately. Yeah. 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 Tim, what do you, what do you have to add to that? And then we're going to expand a little bit more on, on the conversation Allie just started there about, um, you know, maybe not doing quite enough for what the person needs to fully get them back to things. But, um, you know, any, anything else to add to that, like common do's and don'ts after this type of a procedure early on during that rehab process? Yeah. So, you know, there's, you know, certain limitations that you are going to be before three months, as far as like running an impact, mm-hmm. but ultimately it, it is kind of an objective based progression. So 
like Ali alluded to, like we want to get, you got to get range, you got to get um, strength, you, you got to get like balance uh, back. And so, you know, you know, I've seen clients where they're six months out and they still don't have uh, like quad, quad strength, hamstring strength that is relatively close, you know, 50% of their other side. And so they're mm-hmm. kind of frustrated, but again, as long as you've like prefaced that from the get go, like, Hey, this could be, you know, different for you, uh, then that's, that's the main thing. I just tell them like the first six months after surgery, you're just focused on getting strong because it takes so much longer and the patience required is so much more than anyone is really educated on typically, or they anticipate and, you know, just, you know, see headlines or whatever, you know, see, you know, like NFL, they see, okay, so-and-so's back after, yeah. you know, season and okay, well, I should be back good too. And, and so just like, you just like, we just got to work on just objectifying their progress and not really worrying about the time, time frame so much uh, and kind of get away from that, that mindset that it, it week, 12 or whatever, I should be doing this. It's okay. Well, once we establish this objective criteria, then we can move on. And so then they kind of something to uh, focus their energy towards like, okay, here's my goal. And then once I get that, here's my next goal. And we just, and then a good program is going to help them outline that so they can plan ahead and see like, okay, I'm making progress. And then, you know, I'm not going to do this until I do, you know, meet this criteria. Yeah. Check, check these boxes first before you move on. Uh, you know, and I have not fortunately haven't had the experience of tearing my ACL, but I have had several other pretty significant, uh, orthopedic procedures done. And if, you know, I know one thing that was challenging for me was, you know, I had this procedure, I've had four hip labral and FAI, uh, you know, outpatient procedures done. And then I had an ankle bone excision, uh, had a bone chip taken out of my ankle. And during that time frame, when I'm like on crutches, unable to do a lot of the things that I like to do, unable to be as active as I want to be. I remember for me, like my whole lifestyle changed. Like when I'm active and feeling healthy and exercising, my desire to eat better, get more sleep, all this stuff is naturally like a little bit more, a little higher. My motivation is there because it's fueling me to do those things. Man, I remember when I was on crutches, I'm hanging out at my parents' house, doing a whole lot of nothing, just laying there with a continuous passive motion machine on my hip and a ice ice circulating type of machine. And I'm like, "Hey, mom, can you can you bring me a couple cookies there from the kitchen?" Um, so those are some of the things that I like to try to work on with clients in the early stages of rehab when we know we're not going to be able to get that creative in the clinic. Like, there's certain things we can do. There's certain things that we just can't do yet. And while the rehab might not seem as uh, fun and active as these later stages, there's a lot of stuff in that person's life that can impact their potential recovery that we can work on. Like what's your sleep? What's your involvement with the team? Are you still going to practices and like being around the group, being part of the team, like keeping that kind of motivation and energy high, or are you just hanging out at home, you know, not, not doing much. What are you eating? Like, because of course, what you're putting in your body is what your body's going to try to use to repair these tissues and, and repair your strength and hypertrophy and all this stuff. So that's where I always like to put my focus early on so that hopefully we establish really good habits if they weren't already there for when we get back to this higher level activity towards the later stages of rehab. Well, we already have that foundation set, just like hopefully the foundation of quad strength, hamstring strength, hip strength, all this, all this stuff that you guys started to mention. Um, now, Ali, you started to to open up this uh, rabbit hole here of 
underloading in physical therapy. A lot of times, I think this is a problem, not just in ACL scenarios, but just in general, uh, we'll just say there's, um, no profession in the world. That's perfect. We definitely don't do everything perfect in the profession of physical therapy, but what do you typically see specifically with people who have had their ACL reconstructed are some of the common, like, I don't know if errors is the right way, but like some common things that are like, we're falling short in physical therapy with these individuals, truly helping them get back to like where it is that they need and want to be. Because we know we see a high rate of tears on the other knee. We see a high rate of re-tears. Like, how do we fix this problem? Where are we falling short? Yeah. So I think the biggest piece is honestly education and even just getting into different sporting teams and clubs and athletes around the area. Cause there's actually so much evidence in terms of actually being able to have a foundational program to help them specifically with how they're cutting, how they're pivoting, landing mechanics, all of that stuff that leads to them having an ACL tear at some point. So if we can build a program that has foundational strength and help those athletes become stronger in their sport, I think that will help immensely in terms of preventing ACL tears. Okay. Yeah. So you're you're sort of saying more from the front end on the programming strategy and talking about this more from a prevention aspect of how can we get less tears in the first place if we put the right um, measures in place on the front end? Uh, what what do you think, James? What type of, I didn't even ask you this. I know you said you had a great home gym set up and it sounds like you did a lot of your exercise on your own. Did you also attend, you know, traditional like physical therapy or rehab at a facility? Um, and did you see any sort of shortcomings or things that you were kind of left like wanting more from your experience at all? Uh, really good question. I did start, um, PT post-op. I forget how far out, um, but it was probably within the first few days. Mm -hmm. I was starting very slow, mainly just trying to regain, uh, range of motion, specifically extension first, flexion second, quad activation, you know, the usual things. Um, now I, Although I was at an in-network facility, I think I got really lucky with the PT that I was working with um, back in Kansas City. His name's JT Christensen. So if you're in Kansas City looking for a great post-op, pre-op doc, that's who I would recommend. He's at SSOR. Anyway, um, he very, very much understood what I did and allowed me to kind of explain the things that I was trying to get back to, what was important to me. And he kind of tailored a lot of what we did to fit what was going on and what I was trying to strive for. Um, and luckily didn't push back on me doing the things that I was doing at home. Um, like I, I, you know, as soon as I was weight bearing again, I was back to deadlifting pretty much the exact same day. Um, and trying to squat to depth as soon as possible as well. Um, if you're curious on what those timelines, I'm look for me. Um, you can hop on my Instagram page. I documented a whole lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely did, but I used my own knowledge on the background and the back end um, side of things to get myself back to moving as, as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. um, because like I said before, if I could, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Why does, why does this not surprise me that James was back to weight bearing and James <laughs> was back to deadlifting? So, um, <laughs> knowing what I know about you, that doesn't surprise me at all. And I'd, I'd be right there with you. Um, all right, Tim, let's just round, round this conversation out kind of with you. Um, and what have you seen 
you know, are you seeing that when people traditionally or on average, they're wrapping up physical therapy? And I put that in quotes because, you know, physical therapy means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Like, are people completing or being discharged generally from physical therapy and they are ready for that? Like they're fully back to stuff that they're, they're doing. Or I know sometimes we're like, I've seen examples of people are like done with physical therapy because they can do like their normal daily life stuff, but they're not ready to get back on a soccer field or get back on a, you know, CrossFit gym floor and do high level activities. What, what have you noticed? Yeah, that's absolutely the the biggest downfall is like people, you know, will tend PT for two or three times a week, these initial few weeks. And then when it comes time, when they actually need some like good guidance, some education on how to progress their program, then oftentimes their insurance coverage is, is, uh, is out. And so they're like, well, <laughs> I, I guess I'll go to like this trainer or, you know, what have you. I just had a client yesterday and he's not, doesn't have any timelines. Um, he's doing well. I'm like, here's the basic exercises. You're confident with this. He has, you know, limited or PT visits. I'm like, yeah, let's just face this out. Cause what you're going to need is the guidance at month six at month nine. And that's what we want to really help you out where, and that's the biggest deficit. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's what goes, you know, isn't really caught so much. And so like, what we're seeing is like good, like good practices like at month six, seven, is doing like some objective testing. So kind of doing the hop testing that Ali uh, alluded to earlier, but mm-hmm. with the expectation that it, it, we, you shouldn't really, you shouldn't be close to 90%, 80%. We wanna just see, show you where your limitations are. And then that way you can see like, oh, okay. I'm, you know, especially for those clients that don't have much discomfort or they're feeling good and maybe jogging around. It's like, oh, wow, this side compared to the other side. It, there's a big deficit and then really have an objective marker to go from. But with that said, that they can still like have close symmetry, but that doesn't really represent like their movement quality. And cause like you talked about like the unaffected uh, often getting weaker. And so sometimes we don't have that baseline to go from then. Yeah. They can do well at 89%, but sometimes they're just really good at compensating. So especially these athletes, so it's a really dynamic uh, process. And it just takes a lot of like guidance and, and having like someone to help guide through that and show where your deficits are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think sometimes, uh, and I would say maybe even more than sometimes, I think athletes, people that are athletic tend to be the best compensators out there because we're trying to perform a task or a, a role on a team or whatever that is. We tend to be really, really good at compensating and just figuring out a way to get the job done. Uh, James or Allie, did you guys have something? One of you had something to say there. Go for it, Allie. Yeah. Um, so I was going to say, I love how Tim like brought up this point on still maintaining PT through that six months, through that nine months. And not only is it just the objective testing, but it's also being comfortable through a PT standpoint, as much as I love our profession of just having the comfortability of knowing what they need to do for whatever sport they're getting back to doing. I think Mm -hmm. as PTs, we all have the general knowledge, you know, we're specialized in stuff like that, but there's other PTs who aren't. And I am also educating residents right now through the orthopedic clinical specialty program. And when I'm mentoring with them, one of the biggest things I have noticed is their confidence with being able to challenge their patients. 
And so they are doctors of physical therapy. They're going to get their specialty degree, but then they're still having difficulty of knowing, oh, can I push them here yet? Should I do this? You know, they're like kind of delaying the timeline mm-hmm. of getting them back to the sport. So it's also the comfortability of just like having that rapport with your PT. And if you are a PT, you know, listening to this or just wanting to learn more too, it's just about research. It's just about asking them. I ask my patients all the time, if there's sports that I don't know about, like I had an athlete that did fencing. I didn't know anything about fencing, but I had her take videos and take videos of her friends of whatever she needed to do. So I could work with those movements to help her get back to doing what she loves. But it's really just, you know, caring about your patients and that goes for both as a PT, but then also on the patient side of really making sure that your PT understands your needs. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because, you know, we see, we see that right in whether we're talking about ACLs or anything else, we see people go receive care somewhere, whether it's from a physician, you know, MD, whether it's from a physical therapist, chiropractor, whoever. And quite frankly, they potentially get subpar care because that person doesn't understand the demands of their activity nor do all providers do what you just said, Allie, and like put in the time and the effort, really it's an effort thing to figure out what those demands and those requirements are and learn about it, right? Like you're not necessarily going to pick up fencing, but you went and researched and studied and learned about what those demands are so that you could treat that client better. And you better believe that at the very least created a confidence in a bond and a connection between you and that person, because they probably really appreciated the time and effort that you put in to learn about something that's important to them. And that's going to go a really long way in the rehab process because they just know that you're bought in to get them better and help them achieve whatever their goals are and guide them through that process. So this is one reason why I'm uh, you know, passionate about and really fortunate to work with a group of individuals like you three and the other providers on our team, because we do have those experts in people's activities and sports. And if we are unfamiliar with something, we are, all of us are going to go figure it out and learn about it and try to figure out how we can best do that. Um, James, were you raising your hand before? Yeah. I just want to make sure we catch that before we, we move on. What you got for us? Yeah. So I just wanted to like share my own experience in, you know, getting discharged. I don't remember exactly when I was discharged, but it was, it was probably around the six month mark if I had to guess. Um, but I competed, uh, locally at like six and a half months, uh, right before I moved out here. And even though I was able to compete, I was able to, you know, hit movement standards. I was definitely still compensating and still needed PT when I got out here. Now that was before I knew physio room, but I mean, the stuff, some of the stuff that we were doing, we would have definitely done within our walls here. Mm -hmm. Um, but I still needed care. Like I, I was not 100%. Um, I, I wouldn't even say that I was ultimately very close. Like I still offloaded into my left side to stay away from my right knee. Often I still wasn't like to full true range of motion, um, under loading. Um, I could do it sometimes, but not super consistently. So, um, even though you get discharged, it doesn't necessarily mean you're ready to tackle the things that you, you know, do. And we honestly see that a lot in here. I saw it yesterday with a knee replacement. So similar injury, kind of, sort of, um, but discharged because he hit certain measurements, certain levels that you need to hit to get discharged, but nowhere close to the opposite side. So I that's saw that individual. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that's another compared to uh, you, James, of course, having your own personal experience. And then you two, Tim and Allie having probably treated a lot more clients for ACL reconstruction than I have. I mean, I've had my fair share of clients that have gone through it, but I wouldn't say a really high number, but what I have had an extremely high number of is clients who have had knee replacements and hip replacements. And let me tell you about a group of individuals who get discharged from physical therapy before, in my opinion, they really should. And, you know, a lot of this, like Tim said, is it's insurance driven or if it's, it's medical system driven or whatever that is. But I tell people, you know, you shouldn't expect your knee replacement to like, you're not going to be fully back to everything and regain the strength in the atrophy from the atrophy and all this stuff, like six visits of therapy. Are you kidding me? That's, that's absolutely crazy. I tell people, this is going to be like a year until you've regained the strength that you've lost because a lot of that strength you've lost and control balance, whatever that is happened long before your surgery while you were limping around on this arthritic knee, right? It's, it's not just from the surgery moving forward. So, you know, this is something I think we see, is a problem in general in, in physical therapy. And, you know, whether the issue is physical therapists are lacking confidence, pushing people like Ali mentioned and really challenging them on, you know, pushing the bounds and trying to get them back to things and pushing them hard enough, whether it's medical system driven and the environment clinically that they find themselves in doesn't allow them the time and the space to really demonstrate their knowledge and expertise to really help those people. Cause they're juggling too many clients. Or whether the, you know, the health insurance side of things places red tape and hindrances on it and really doesn't let us work with people in the capacity that is necessary to create these and stimulate these changes. But one thing, like you guys just all sort of said, a lot of times that discharge point, which I hate that word, drives me nuts, discharge from physical therapy or graduate. But it seems like it's around that six month time period a lot of times. But like you sort of mentioned, that's usually not the return to sport time. So how do we kind of stretch that out and make sure people are continuing those later stages of rehab things to really get back to sport? And that's a lot of times where an office like physio room comes in. If we didn't get to see that individual on the front end, you know, I don't think it's a surprise or a secret to anybody listening to this show that largely we're an out of network practice but we end up working with these people a lot of times because they didn't fully get back to where they needed to get in the traditional physical therapy office. So we end up seeing them on the back end when they're still having issues, they're still not fully regaining their strength, whatever that is, um, to really help them push the performance button or push that, pull that performance lever. Um, so, so it's just, we could probably talk about that all day. Tim, I would love for you to just expand just a little bit more and maybe describe one or two of these more common return to sport tests. You and Allie both have mentioned hop tests and things, but for people that, um, you know, maybe haven't had this experience, don't understand what that is. Could you just explain what some of the more common return to sport testing is? And then, you know, one or two of the more common tests, maybe just sort of like describe it so that people can visualize what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. So like I'll have like the fundamentals, like I want to make sure that their range uh, is symmetric. They don't have any effusion or swelling on their joint. They can do, like a, a step down test, they can do it, you know, 10 times with good quality of motion, good endurance, you know, comparative to the other side. So establish those things well. And then, uh, and then, yeah, so then the hop testing is, uh, you know, you'll do like a single leg hop going forward, do typically three of those compared to the other side. You'll do 
three hops in a row going forward, you know, looking and comparing side to side, and then you'll do a cross hop where you hop on different uh, opposite sides of the line. And, and then, so those are, are kind of the main things we want to do often. We want to do some strength testing as well. So, um, you know, some clinics, you know, have an isokinetic machine, most don't. So you can use uh, different measures like f functional measures as far as like a, a step up, like to fatigue and comparing the other side. You can use a handheld dynamometer, which kind of measures the force um, pushing out and just into, <clears throat> into a device that measures how much pressure you're putting. So you can measure your quad uh, strength as well. And, um, Am I forgetting one, Allie? Well, I mean, those are all good ones. And then either one of you could absolutely please, please jump in and answer that. Now, typically, if you're going to give someone the clearance to to go back to sport, are you usually looking for about 90% of what the other limb is? Or what's sort of your guideline there that you're shooting for? I think like it was, it, you know, initially it was kind of 80 and 90%. And, and now with like research highlighting how like the unaffected can become like atrophied and weaker than, and, and was still with the high prevalence of ACL tears. And a lot of like practitioners are looking at more like I, we want like a hundred percent, like I, you know, personally, I would want to be at a hundred percent. I would be like good enough, you know, knowing what I know and seeing what I've seen, like I would be in no hurry, you know, regardless of what sport and, and just knowing I want to have a hundred percent. And, and the other test I forgot is just like, is the same score. So taking into account the psychological readiness, kind of like Ali alluded to, like that is huge. Just seeing that correlation of like, you know, if if you, where you're at before your injury, if you're 100%, where are you at now? Or sometimes I'll just say related to the unaffected, but where are you at now? And if it, and if they're anywhere like less than 90 for sure, then, then that is just a, a big red flag. And they can have like the best movement and symmetry, but if they don't have that confidence, then again, they, they have to have that. And so we're not always going to get that with like the objective testing. So it's where kind of the good training as far as understanding what the demands of their sport are and how can we simulate that in, in their rehab? So we've got to have them have mass confidence. So, you know, if they're jumping up in the air and then they get pushed and they're next to a sideline on a, nasty field that's maybe wet they got to have like maybe that exposure that like neuromuscular control that just kind of awareness that oh i can do this they don't have to brace with a, a stiff knee and then yeah. be predisposed to you know a re-injury yeah i think that part is huge and um you know having that psychological piece and being very confident where you're not going to hesitate you're not going to hold up you're not going to you know flinch in the actual moment where you have to make that cut or that twist or pivot or reaction, whatever that is, obviously sports are very reactionary. I actually heard James having that conversation with a young client yesterday They didn't tear their ACL, but they're having knee pain and they're talking about playing football. Well, I heard James tell him, you know, if you're not feeling 95%, not 94, but 95, where you're going to be able to do something on the field and not hesitate whatsoever. I don't want you to go on the field and try to play fully because the chances that you either continue to hurt your knee or hurt something else go up in that scenario when you're pulling up, favoring things, whatever that might be. Allie, have you seen in, I had this experience happen once in the clinic where I had to, talking about challenging clients, I had to really call somebody out and it was a safety thing, right? I had a young student athlete who I was putting them through some return to sport 
criteria testing, some of these hop tests and things that Tim was talking about. And I really got the suspicion that they were basically like sandbagging their test, right? On the leg that wasn't injured, they were not given their full 100% effort to make it look like they were closer to 90% than I really thought that they were. Have you ever had that experience happen? Or how do you navigate that basically? If, you know, if that were to be the case, how do you, how do you make sure that the person is really putting forth full effort on their uninjured limb to really tell, is this 90%? Is this 95? Yeah. I mean, objective testing is going to be objective testing. And that's mm -hmm. why I think that just the education and knowledge based of the PT side is super important because even if they do get close similarities between the two, it's all about practicing the drills and watching their landing mechanics and stuff like that following. So if they're still not able to plant on that leg or do transitions or change in direction quickly, and they're still lacking the confidence or stutter stepping or stuff like that, I'll tell them right then and there that I don't want them doing those types of things yet. So I will say and preface, you know, before any sort of the testing of like, okay, that's awesome. You're getting closer to that, but we still need to see sports specific testing. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately going to be the truth of everything. So they can't, they can't fake that. You know, if yeah. you're going game mode, you can't fake that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It basically sounds like you're telling me, you know, the objective testing is, you know, obviously it's objective. It's sort of like the quality aspect, excuse me, the quantity aspect of things, but there's a huge quality component as well too. There's a huge quality control situation going on. And that's where the expertise of the providers like you three come in to really be like the final judge on whether that person gets the stamp of approval or not. Um, man, this has been fun. What, um, you know, do any of you three have something that maybe we haven't touched on yet that in your ACL experience or just PT experience in general, um, you really want to make sure you share with people who are spending their time with us, tuning in to listen to this episode of The Code? Well, one thing is like, even though, even if they kind of pass everything or objective, you know, they can tolerate all the demands they need to, then even going further than that is like, as a transition back to sport is, Think about the acute first chronic load um, and, and like monitoring that. And I was just, I was thinking about that. I was like wondering, James, like if when you went back to lifting, like say you could do a workout and you're pleased with that, did you have to like, you know, back off like when you would have pushed more for like subsequent days, subsequent workouts? Oh, good question. Um, not necessarily back off, but I was very intentional about how I built up. Um, so, you know, in CrossFit, you hear the RX and scaled mantras, if you will, versions of workouts. I did a lot of scaling and modifying to make sure that I was able to move well um, and generally without pain um, before like really pushing the pedal. Now there were times where I would like ultimately like stop a workout short because of the fact that like I didn't feel comfortable or realistically like safe doing something. Mm -hmm. Um, but I never stopped myself from trying necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That was a good question, Tim. And I think, you know, the, the idea that you just mentioned James, whether someone's had an ACL reconstruction or not, I think is just a good, good, uh, 
mode of practice anyways. Like if you're training or you're doing a session, you're doing something and something's just not feeling right, it's probably a time to be very aware of that, potentially modify things or get the extra set of eyes from a coach or whatever that is, you know, whether, whether someone's injured or not, if, um, if your movement quality is going to sacrifice potentially putting you at risk for, for some sort of an injury. Um, no, this, this has been awesome. The only other thing that I wanted to mention, and then if something comes to the mind of you guys, please, please chime in is we sort of talked about a lot of times traditional physical therapy or rehab is, uh, you know, falling short on loading people, they're completing physical therapy sooner than they probably go back to sport safely is, you know, whether you're someone who's had an ACL or, you know, someone who does, or like Ali's sister going through this process right now is you have to have a really good network of individuals who are resources around you that you trust to have your best interest, um, you know, at heart type of thing, whether this is coaches, trainers, athletic trainers, rehab specialists like us, you know, people who are going to make sure that you're progressing on a timeline that's appropriate for you and you're not putting yourself in, you know, further harm's way to potentially re-tear or tear the other knee and whatnot. And it all starts, like Ali said, back at the prevention side of things. You know, a lot of times we get to talk to coaches, um, whether this is of soccer teams or lacrosse or whatever, as a byproduct of we're treating one of their athletes who has already had an injury. Right. But if we could have those conversations on the front end, put injury prevention programs into place, put very thorough and adequate warm up, cool down procedures in place, make sure strength and training programs to complement what they're doing on the field is very sufficient to potentially try and prevent these things in the first place. That's going to be the best place to start to, you know, sort of tie in or wrap up this whole, um, I don't want to lightly use the term pandemic, but issue of ACL tears being so prevalent and continuing to rise every year, especially as we see, you know, sports special specialization and things happening, uh, you know, the numbers not going down. So. I know that, that's, a, that's an awesome point. It doesn't matter what sort of program rehab is like making that, having that relationship and that like alliance, because like, you know, where I worked at before, I'd have you know, 40 or 50 clients a week and, you know, following up with, you know, people that, you know, could use some more guidance or like really, you know, be able to establish a good relationship was, was compromised in that setting. Whereas now, like, it, it's just great to be able to work one-on-one for, for an hour and then not have that client load. And, and so then people make that relationship and then they're much more ready to like reach out to me if any questions and then we can like communicate so much better. And so, like you touched on like that is just a huge part is like having someone they can bounce ideas or questions off if, if something's not feeling right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for sure for sure any closing remarks james Allie? um i guess i would just add that you know you're not as delicate as you might think you are post-op um as long as you you know clear those first full handful of loops to jump through when it comes to like structural integrity and stuff like that. Um, you know, as long as you keep movements clean and you are within the boundaries of realistically staying outside of, um, impact and rotation, you know, typically speaking, you can kind of, you know, you're not as delicate as you might think. Um, and then just a big piece 
prehab is huge. Get as strong as you can, as fast as you can, right before you get that surgery. Um, I worked out the morning of my surgery. Um, whether that changed anything or not, I don't know, but, um, seemed like a smart thing to do. Um, and I also deadlifted every single day for like 45 days pre-op <laughs> as well. Cause I couldn't squat. So I was just trying to move as much weight as I physically possibly could. Um, so get as strong as you can. Um, and you're not delicate. That's all there it's you it. Go. There you go. What do you got, Allie? My biggest piece would be like, if you're a PT that's listening to this, just always be curious, always be willing to learn and find a mentor, reach out, ask questions. Don't be scared to ask silly questions. I love that my residents ask me questions because it's going to challenge myself and that they're curious because they want to be better PT. So I love that about them. And then from the patient perspective, day one, and even through your first month, it's going to be a slower process. So really get to know your PT, really make sure that you can build that report because there's definitely a high percent. When I say high percent, 25 to 45% of patients that have ACL surgery will not return to the sport anymore just because they're fearful and they're scared to get re-injured. And so having a PT that's going to listen to you and understand your concerns, you want to be able to be open with them, hear their concerns of just daily struggles to help them get through because they're going to be the ones that are going to help you through the confidence through the end phases. So those are my kind of final pieces that I would say from both perspectives. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And I think that's an awesome piece to close on there. Um, You know, those of you that have listened to other episodes of the code before, you know that if you ever need guidance, support, someone to listen to you, please don't ever hesitate to reach out to us. You'll find all of our contact information wherever you found this podcast. And then you'll find the information for Drs. James, Tim, and Allie in the show notes, whether you want to connect with them on Instagram or Facebook or email or whatever that is, please feel free to reach out to us. And then if you're somebody tuning into this show who doesn't live in the Denver, Colorado area where we are, we work with people virtually. We have a huge network of other providers that we trust, just like some shout outs James gave in the Kansas City area. We know people all over the place. If you need someone locally where you are, we can give you some guidance and some support. So thanks again for tuning into this episode of The Code on ACL Reconstruction, and we'll catch you guys back here next time. Thanks so much.